Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am Chris Rawl. We have just finished the Masters. The NBA playoffs are starting this week. The Stanley Cup playoffs are a few weeks out. It's a good time to be alive. It is a good time to be a sports fan. And it's a good time to write and read. I bring that up because I have started a weekly newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday morning. If you have not already signed up for it, please do so. It's free. It's easy. All you need to do is go to www.chrisrawl.com. There's a subscribe button in the top right hand of the website. Click on it, put your email in, and starting on Wednesday morning, uh, it will come out. First one was last week. Second one will be a day from now. Um, so please go there, do that. It will be about sports. It will presumably have some strange jokes that I like to do when I write. <laughs> and it's going to be a good time for everybody. So go and do that. And now we will move on to today's episode where I talk about what makes Augusta National so amazing and why the Masters is so different, frustratingly so, from traditional PGA Tour stops. What a sport was, what a sport currently is, and what a sport should be. I spend an alarming depraved amount of time thinking about those three things independently and how they connect with one another and work with one another and sometimes work against one another. I have so many opinions on these three things, what a sport was, what it is, what it should be. I have so many opinions across the board. doesn't matter about the sport. doesn't matter about the league. Uh, if I consume it, if I play it or watch it or gamble on it or all of those things, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of opinions. It's a thing that I'm very passionate about because it's just such a large portion of my life. Uh, college football is a very good example because I think every single episode of the Chris Rawls show that I have recorded about college football pretty much pertains to these things. It's less about analysis and let's talk about how Georgia won the national title or how Alabama has become so dominant it's more about the overarching scope of the sport uh, and how I really liked the past version of it. I want that back very badly. That's not going to happen. And I'm wailing and weeping and gnashing my teeth and, and holding my fist to the sky and cursing the college football gods above. Again, it's pretty much the basis of everything that I talk about now about college football, just playoff and, and how that's altered the version of the sport. Uh, and this single-minded focus on national championships and how that didn't necessarily exist so much in the past. And there was so much uh, diversity within what people desired from the game itself. Rivalry wins or divisional title races or conference title races or just a lot of things that weren't ESPN force-feeding who is going to make the playoff, who is going to win the national title down my throat day and night. That's college football. Uh, again, that's not going to be this show, but... It's just a thing that I'm always thinking about as I watch sports, as I just sit on my own time and in a very perverse way, think about these things, thinking about the NBA. I've been pretty vocal this season about some of the shortcomings that I think the sport and the game has fallen into. And just this feeling that I don't necessarily like the present of the sport. I also don't think that the past was perfect. There are parts of it that maybe I would like to come back, but there are lots of stuff from the past that I go, that wasn't that fun, you know? 
that late 90s, early 2000s version of basketball after Jordan had left the league and everybody was concerned with playing isolation basketball and it was still physical and it was these 75 to 80 basketball games that just didn't have a lot of space, didn't have a lot of openness, didn't have a lot of flow. It wasn't that enjoyable. You know, you think back to Spurs and Pistons playing in the NBA Finals in 2005 and it was just, I really liked the Spurs but it was grubby-ass basketball, like, to the 90th degree. And that was what was on display at the highest level. So I'm not saying I want that, but then you come into present day and you're going, I don't know. It seems like a lot of these people don't even want to play basketball. Adam Silver's talking about that last week. How do we fix this problem? How do we incentivize players to play? That's a whole bizarre can of worms. Uh, Just the homogenous nature of how teams play basketball now. Uh, It's very similar across the board. You can blame it on the analytical movement. You can blame it on other factors, but it's a lot of threes. It's a lot of just driving and trying to get free throws. I do think there's been an increased focus on just the ability to play basketball with efficiency in mind, you know, thinking of in terms of threes and free throws and, and stuff that the analytical crowd has really pushed. And for good reason, those are the most valuable shots in basketball. But then when you look at it manifested in a player and you see uh, somebody like James Harden, you go, this isn't fun basketball. This is actually the exact opposite of it. I feel like in a different way, I'm watching these 75 to 70 slugfests from 20 years ago. That's not good either. You know, I think there's a middle ground to be found or something that we haven't seen yet down the road where there is more openness, there is more flow but not at the expense of some things that existed within the sports past. Uh, The NHL is, I hope, moving towards a place that I really salivate thinking about because there are past things from the sport that I love, uh, that I still want retained. Violence to a certain extent, physicality, I love, love, love that stuff about the sport. I mean, I became a hockey fan When the Quebec Nordiques moved to Colorado, I was weaned on Colorado-Detroit, the nastiest hockey rivalry of the last 30 years. It was the only thing that people who did not follow the sport would talk to me about. What is, did you see that brawl last night? And it was actual bloodletting every time the Avalanche and the Red Wings played, starting with Claude Lemieux in the 96 playoffs when he cheap shots Chris Draper, breaks his face against the boards, shatters his eye socket and cheekbones, and it just sets off years and years worth of uh, hatred, fighting, just, again, literal bloodletting between these two teams that despise one another. So that's what I grew up on. Now, in present day, maybe I don't want it to that extent, but I still like a lot of that stuff. I like, come playoff time, how it's nasty, how it's physical, how the sport is not just about, oh, who can waltz around in the middle and score easily. It's it's an endurance test. I like that. However, in the past, maybe there wasn't as much emphasis on creating flow, openness, skill, the stuff that I talked about more with basketball. But we're starting to see play a more prominent role in the sport of hockey, this emphasis on skill and creativity. And if you can combine those things, that violence to a certain level, the physicality to a certain level, with skill, with creativity, you have a really, really incredible sport. Uh, Football does a good job of combining those things. That's why I think it is the most enjoyable sport to watch, but 
hockey could get into a place that I think is really appealing to fans that already exist, that already like hockey and ones that don't, but maybe would be more interested in the sport if they could tap into that specific thing. I, I think about that as I watch some of these teams that currently exist. I think the Lightning are a good segue from that past into what I hope is a better future that really combines these things effectively because they have incredible high-end skill. We've known that for quite some time. Andre Vasilevsky, one of the best goaltenders in the world for years. Uh, just the talent on their roster, whether it's Victor Hedman or Steven Samkos or Nikita Kucherov or Braden Point, there's so many high-level players. But they've also found a way to combine that with that violence and physicality that you need come playoff time that's always existed within the sport. That's why they've won two Stanley Cups. That's why they have a chance to win a third this year. They're in a really good place. They're a really good showcase for what I think hockey should be. Uh, there's two teams. I think the Avalanche are, are really close to what emulating what the Lightning are with maybe even a more intense emphasis on skill, but also saying, hey, we know that we need to be physical. We're going to lean into that. We're not afraid to just go and muck it up. I think you've seen a noticeable shift in Colorado this year on that front. I think some of their deadline acquisitions, whether it's Josh Manson on the back end or Arturi Lekin on the front end, they lean into, all right, we're not just stockpiling people that want to waltz through the middle. And if they get hit, then they don't know what to do. We have people on our roster who want to get down and dirty. They want to blast people. They want to forecheck. Uh, if you come at them, they'll come at you. That starts from the top on down with Nathan McKinnon, who is an incredible combination of physicality and skill, right? Uh, and then you see these other teams that maybe it's the future of hockey, maybe it's not. There's a lot of opinions on whether teams like the Florida Panthers or the Toronto Maple Leafs can succeed right now playing the brand of hockey that they do, which it's even a step beyond what the Lightning and the Avalanche play. It's just hell-mell, go, 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 go. If 10 goals are scored in this game, we're going to trust that we're the team that scores six and the other team scores four. It's really, really, really fun to watch. Those are two teams that outside of the avalanche, I would prefer to watch over anybody in hockey. It's just exciting, fast-paced, offensive onslaught. They're not afraid to take chances. They're not afraid to give up chances if things go awry because they assume over the course of a game, they're just going to outchance and outscore you because of the high-end talent that both of those rosters possess forward cores that are probably the two deepest in the entire league. However, thing that has always existed within hockey is playoffs are different. It's going to be a lot more of a grind. It's going to be a lot more physical. People are going to be allowed to hold and grab more than they have during the regular season. And it's going to turn into more of a knife fight in the mud. So can you win playing what the Panthers and what the Maple Leafs are playing right now? The answer in the past has been no, but you know, the more the NHL leans into this emphasis on skill and creativity, the more it opens the door for a team like the Panthers or for the Maple Leafs to break through and win a Stanley Cup and kind of usher in maybe a little bit different of an era compared to the dead puck era from 20 years ago when every game was two to one. It was just kind of abhorrent hockey. The New Jersey Devils, they're trapping everything. They spawn just all of these copycats. Neutral zone trap, just the most dreaded thing in the history of hockey. Most boring-ass hockey you'll ever watch in your life, but they're winning Stanley Cups with it, so everybody wanted to follow suit. All it takes is somebody breaking through. You get the roadmap, and you understand, all right, this is what the sport can look like moving forward. And then as a fan, you go, is this good or is this bad? So that's a really long-winded way of getting into the main thing that has been percolating in my mind as I think about what a sport was, what it is, what it should be in the future, according to me, Chris Rawl, the person who is 
a really passionate person about sports in general and, and thinks a lot about this subject. This has been percolating in my mind as I've watched the Masters this last weekend, the most popular and widely loved golf tournament in existence. Now, the Masters can take itself a little bit too seriously. There is no sporting event in the world that takes more pleasure in just performing self-fellatio on itself because the Masters, they send Jim Nance out and he's there in the jacket and he's just talking in the Jim Nance voice and they're piping in bird noises. It can be a little much. However, the tournament itself and specifically the course that it is played on, Augusta National, it is universal appeal, universal approval from hardcore golf fans and casual fans alike. You will not come across somebody who pays attention to the Masters in some way that doesn't just go, this is a cool tournament. This is, I might not be able to verbalize why if I'm a casual fan, but uh, it's fun. And the more hardcore people, and especially the more nerdy people like me that lean into this just really nuanced takes on, on sports, they're going to be able to better verbalize what makes this tournament and especially this course grounds for such a celebration. And it's a very interesting thing to acknowledge and talk about because it's very different from what your normal golf tournament is, something that I think merits discussion continually because as we talk about those roadmaps that I mentioned with college football, NBA, NHL, golf has a roadmap. Uh, it's Augusta National. <laughs> it's it's a place that every pro golfer talks about like it's a piece of heaven transplanted down to earth. Again, some of these stuffs, it'll make people roll their eyes, but when you get into the more detailed aspects of this course, I think it's pretty easy to get a window into, okay, I can understand how this specific plot of land creates such a scintillating experience for the people who play it and especially for all the millions and millions and millions of people that watch it. So I'm watching the tournament, four days, watching a ton on Thursday, ton on Friday, not a ton on Saturday, and then I'm watching the final round on Sunday. Scotty Scheffler obviously ends up kind of winning in a runaway. Bunch of great moments that happen over the course of those four days that I will remember. But the more that I watched, the more I just thought about how, regardless of what's happening, the course is always the star of the show when I watch the Masters. That's why Brandel Chambly, he's an analyst for the Golf Channel. He's very thoughtful and smart individual as it comes to the game of golf. He's talking about Augusta National, and he's saying stuff like, they have established the gold standard in terms of the conditioning of the golf course. And that might not mean a lot to casual fans. That means a lot to someone like me as I'm watching this. And especially as I'm watching on Thursday and Friday, I'm watching the featured groups broadcast on ESPN+. Plus. So you're just watching each hole, which gives the announcers more time to talk about the specifics and the nuances of each hole and talk about just what makes this place such a challenge. Why, how does it separate all of these players? Uh, what kind of skill sets can you use to get through this place? And it starts on the greens. That's the first thing that really stands out. The green complexes are just, they're otherworldly. They're phenomenal. I watch them and I just, I can't even handle how enjoyable they look like to putt on and to just watch professionals play on. It starts on hole one and it doesn't really ever stop. I mean, you look at some of those and I love thinking, oh, what would happen if you plopped me and my friends who play golf that range from plus handicaps to 18 handicaps, just put us on hole five at Augusta National. 
at nasty ass green with 500 different humps. It seems like it's a mile long. You can put a pin in any place that the human mind could ever conceive. Just put us on there and have, let us have a putting contest. What would happen? You know, when you're seeing pros on it and they're four putting from one end of the green to the other, and they're trying to play these greens and pins that are just tricky as hell that require incredible amount of thought and just mental fortitude to stay afloat during hole nine. Same thing. I mean, I I think about Tiger Woods winning his last masters in 2019 and the most memorable part of that round, it was two things. One, just Tiger weathering the storm and going, all right, everybody else is going to fall and I'm not, I'm going to play to the thick part of the greens. I'm not going to bring anything into play that I don't want to. I'm not going to go flag hunting because I trust that people are going to feel my presence and they're going to wilt and I'm just going to go about my business and I'll win. And that's what happened. But the most memorable actual shot of that round for me was his two putt on hole nine. And again, an incredible green that you can put pins anywhere. He's on one side of the green, the pins all the way on the other, and he's got to lag it down. And the announcers are going, this is just an, inc- this is so hard to two putt it's scorching fast. It's going over this ridge and down this ridge and over this ridge. And Tiger lags it down from what seems like a mile away to a tap-in. And he's going on to the back nine. And again, we know that he won. There's just so many. I I could go over almost every hole after watching the tournament every year. And I just kind of forget some of them. But, I mean, right after hole nine, you're going to hole 10 and hole 11. That green on 11, just it's sensational stuff. You go down every hole and... You just realize, okay, this is an incredible challenge. And it's not just about the speed. I think the announcers will always be talking about that. People will always be talking about That's very noticeable as you're watching them play. But it's about the pin placement. It's about the firmness of the greens themselves. That with all of these different plateaus and slopes, it requires incredible thought, mental fortitude, skill, all of the things that create incredible golf. Um, I'm listening to Live from the Masters. I think this was on maybe Friday or Saturday. And it's a great, great, great thoughtful analysis. Does not exist in any other sport, which makes me kind of sad. But Live from the Masters, it is that. It's just people sitting around talking. Brandel Chambly, I mentioned earlier, he's one of them. But they just kind of have conversations. And they talk about a lot of stuff like this. And one of the guys who was on there, I can't remember his name. They bring him on. They're just talking a little bit about the course and he's musing. This course is so cool because it puts relentless pressure on shot making. That's the act. That's the exact term that he used. And I hear that and I'm like, that's a very good and relevant observation because the greens, they do that. It's just relentless. Uh, whether it's one putting, two putting, just trying to mitigate the damage. It never stops at Augusta National, but you extend backwards and you get the exact same thing. Just relentless pressure on the person to think and say, where can I not miss? Okay, we got to block out the right side. Okay, how am I going to play this shot? Okay, where is the pin exactly? Where do I need to land this ball if the greens are firm? I can't just throw it right next to the hole and it stops like a lot of PGA Tour stops are prone to do, the way that they water their greens down, the way that they soften them up. Uh, The way that Augusta National creates this relentless pressure on shot making, it is the key to creating challenging golf. It is the key to rewarding the best player. It is the key to creating the best possible viewing experience for fans. These are things that I think everybody would agree upon. 
you go down the final nine holes at Augusta and that relentless pressure on shot making, it's, it's riveting. It's why I'm still watching on the back nine is Scotty Scheffler's there and he's leading by a handful of strokes and it doesn't seem like there's any way he can lose, but you go, look, I mean, you still got to hit that approach in on 11. I mean, talk about just a terrifying place to be as a golfer. I was talking about that as I'm playing on Sunday morning with my friends. I'm going, think about hitting some of these shots. Not even just with stuff on the line, but just hitting them in general. That approach on 11 at the top of the hill down to this green with water left. You got to bail out right, but then this, depending where you're at and the depth of the shot, the depth of the miss, it's an incredibly nasty up and down. Just It seems so damn hard. The short iron that you got hit in on 12 that did Cam Smith's round in. The approach on both the 13th and the 15th, the par fives, the tee shot on the par three 16th, the tee ball on the 18th coming out of the shoot. There's so many holes that I'm and shots that I just go, this course never stops. Uh, there's a reason that this is the best tournament. There's a reason that everybody describes this course and these holes as sensational. They require continual thought. They require execution. It's the best of all the worlds. Again, it's why... As I'm watching Scheffler down the stretch, I'm going, you never know. I mean, no one on planet Earth thought that Jordan Spieth was going to lose the 2015 Masters after he blasted the field in 2014 and was just humming along, going into hole 12 on Sunday. Next thing you know, he plunks one in the water and then he does another and you're going, what? And the next thing you know, the wheels come off and Danny Millett's winning the Masters. That relentless pressure is, it's the best thing to put the best athletes in the world under that microscope. It's just the best. Um, I, I want to read something. I, I've been reading a lot of stuff about the masters in general and especially about the course because I just, I don't know why or how I kind of forget about it every year, just how incredible it is and how it creates this tournament that I go, it doesn't matter what happens in it. Just watching people play on these surfaces, it's a joy. And I want to read a paragraph that's actually from The New Yorker, strangely enough, but it was written a couple years ago from Nick Palmgartner, or Nick Palmgarten, sorry, who went out to the Masters and he's just these random musings, but he had a paragraph that stood out to me that I want to read. As a televised event, the Masters is peerless. You don't have to be a golf fan to enjoy it or to enjoy napping in front of it. Because the players compete on what is more or less the same terrain year after year, they do so in the context of bygone feats and failures, a folklore of shots made or missed, so that the way each successive champion tackles, say, the par 3 12th, is analogous to the way generations of folk musicians interpret Long Black Veil, end quote. So I really like that parallel. Long Black Veil, not as much as my song, but like the way that everybody plays Hallelujah, which is a song that I really love and strangely enough had been reading about this week as well. I like that visual image in my mind of just, you understand when somebody steps onto the par 3 12th or any of these shots or greens that I've been describing. If you've been a golf fan for a while or followed it your whole life, there's so many things that pile up when you think about any of these holes. When you look and think about hole 16, what's the thing that you think of? You go, Tiger chipping in from over there, plays it up on the slope, bleeds down, the ball stops next to the hole, and you're going, oh, no. And then like a movie moment, it tips in. There's so many of these moments that pile up over the course of time. Again, all of this stuff ties together. All of this stuff is what makes the Masters really cool uh, and, and what makes it universally praised. Uh, it's this course 
that makes this tournament a mental competition just as much as a physical one. I am on the record many times as saying that's the best version of golf. The one that stresses all aspects of your game. The mental game is just as important as a physical game. That's the way the sport is. Anybody who plays it knows. It's actually more important in my opinion. The vast majority of golf, it's mental. Especially when you get to the highest level and all these guys have the tools in the toolkit. At that point, it just becomes what's going on up here in your brain. Now, when you get an event like this on a course like this, it's one that can reward golfers of all shapes, sizes, and strategies. Another thing that I'm very passionate about that I think creates the best possible product, regardless of sport. Uh, it's why you see a tweet going around from Kyle Porter of CBS after the cut line was made and Bryson DeChambeau gets punted into the sun and Larry Mize, who's 63, past champion, just complete pea shooter. I mean, he's hitting the ball 230 yards off the tee. He beats Bryson DeChambeau. He beats his score through two days, averaging 230 off the tee as Bryson is averaging 310 off the tee. Uh, an 80-yard gap. Uh, it's just, it's a place that encourages that. Bryson DeChambeau is not a person who wants to think his way through a golf course. He's been very clear about that. He wants to try and control all of the uncontrollable aspects of the sport that really test your mental game. He wants to measure the wind exactly and say, the sun is beating down at this angle on the surface. And thus, when my ball comes from this angle, it will land so and bounce to here and stop here. And then my putt, I will measure like this. And you can't really play golf like that at Augusta National because there's so many things that you can't really control. So you got to lean into the mental side shot-making side, and thought, 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 thought over and over. So even in a runaway like this year, the Masters is always memorable because of this. The course is always going to be a star. So this year you're going, all right, I'm going to remember a good amount. Scheffler's ascension. I mean, his last two months are insane. Didn't have a PGA Tour win, even though we knew he was good. Uh, kind of seemed like his breakout starts in the Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits when He's awesome for Team USA. He pounds John Rahm in singles on Sunday. Just kind of a little bit of an eye-opener. And then that leads into this year where now he's won four times in the last two months, including the Phoenix Open and now the Masters. You're going to remember that. You're going to remember just him bamboozling the field. Uh, you're going to remember more than anything probably Tiger's return. Him playing on a body that was probably not ready to play and making the cut and just grinding the way through it in pretty much a way that only Tiger could because Tiger's mental game is the greatest that this sport has ever seen. It's probably the greatest that the world of sports has ever seen. There's something going on in his brain that is different from you and I. There just is. And we see another example of that over the last four days. Rory's final round, the 64, is scorching hot. The whole outs with him and Morikawa on the 18th, that's about as incredible of a moment as you're going to see that didn't obviously affect who won and who lost, but the odds of that occurring are just incredible. But he holds out from the bunker on 18 to cap a 64. That's just really cool stuff. And so many of these iconic moments in the history of golf, they're tied into the Masters. They're tied into Augusta National. They're tied into what was being talked about in the New Yorker. Just you remember each of these holes because of the stuff that has come before. It's the past. It's the present. It's the future, right? So this is where things get really interesting to me because now we expand it out beyond just this tournament. We gush about the Masters once a year for good reason, but now we're getting back into PGA Tour. This is where I get really confused and incredibly 
frustrated because you are not going to find anybody who really disagrees with any of my takes that I've said so far. Again, universal approval. Of course, the tournament, let's all give it golf claps and say, that's awesome. This is cool. Every single time we see it, casual fans, hardcore fans, doesn't matter. Everybody likes it. So everybody agrees with all the stuff that I've mentioned. And yet the main governing body, PGA Tour, it has the roadmap. We see it. It's the Masters. It's Augusta National. It's that brand of golf. You see it at the British Open. I think you see it at the Players' Championship. Those are the three tournaments that continually, to me, stand out because they test everything. Mental, physical, thought, the ability to weather the storm, all that kind of stuff. Memorable golf holes, unique requirements of players, allowing different skill sets to compete, all of that stuff. You see it in those stops. You saw it last week, and yet the PGA Tour continues to trot out a weekly product that is the exact opposite of what the Masters brings. I find that very, very, very bizarre because the PGA Tour leans into the knowable nature of golf. They say, we want everybody to know everything. and We just want, we want a specific type of skill set to be rewarded. We want simulator golf. We want driving range golf. Call it whatever you want, but we want people who can hit it far. We want people who can make a bunch of birdies. So we'll soften up the greens. We'll put the pins here so there's not a lot of thought. So you get a steady diet of tournaments that okay, let's lengthen the course a little bit. It's going to be long. Let's grow out the rough a little bit. Let's soften up these greens and let's find a steady stream of golf courses that I would describe as thoughtless. The exact opposite of all that stuff I described with Augusta National, where every single shot, whether it's the tee, whether it's the approach, whether it's on the greens, you're going, okay, I really have to think this through because there are certain things I cannot do on any of these shots or it will obliterate me. I can't miss left over here. I can't miss long here. I can't put it in this bunker here to this flag. I can't hit onto the green up here because that two putts nasty as hell. There's a lot of thought that goes into every single shot at Augusta National. You don't have that pretty consistently on the PGA Tour. You don't have to think through every shot. You don't have to think through every miss. Uh, you have the darts at the dartboard style of golf. Let's hit it long. If you hit it into the rough, who cares? Because you just hit it 350 yards and the green's 100 yards away, so you just you hit a lob wedge out onto the green, and it'll still stop because these greens are not firm. <laughs> they're, they're, we, we want people to try and make birdies, that kind of stuff. Here you go. Uh, winner will be 25 under, and we'll go from there. It's the least entertaining version of golf to me. It is one that does not open up the field to varying skill sets, and it is one that does not lean into the most interesting aspect of the sport, mental endurance. The stuff that made this Tiger Woods story so incredible. It was just that, like it, it overtook the masters for the days leading up to it on Thursday, on Friday, even into Saturday and Sunday after he made the cut, like the story and up until the jacket was awarded to Scotty Scheffler and, and probably Rory's round as well. It was just look at what this course requires and look at this dude who has won here a bunch of times, who is the greatest golfer in the history of the sport. Look at the way that he is just using his brain to make the cut here and play golf. That's interesting to me. That is how golf should be. And again, I think that everybody agrees because we all applaud Augusta National. And we all say this is the best version of the sport. We have the roadmap. And yet we don't really lean into it at any other point in the year, save for random occurrences. Especially the main one being the British Open, which has nothing to do with the PGA Tour. It's very strange. It would be like it would be like the NFL playing the current version of the sport, which is awesome. Let's say they play one game a year where it's 
December and it's Lambeau Field and it's the Packers against the Buccaneers and it's Rodgers and Brady and comes down to a field goal at the buzzer and they're both thrown for 350 yards and it's just the best version of the sport. There's a little bit of snow, you know. I, I mean, just thinking about that, I go, that's that's the best. It's what I pine for as a fan. It would be like that occurring once a year. And then the rest of the time, the NFL going, yeah, that was, everybody loved that, but let's just play seven on seven for the rest of the year. Or, or let's just, let's have a field goal competition instead next week at Lambeau. Let's get Mason Crosby out here to go and kick against Ryan Suckup and just, you know, whoever is the first to 15 points wins. That, that'll be fun, right? People like that. Or the NBA just saying, instead of playing basketball, let's play elimination. Or or hockey just saying, let's just have shootouts, you know. Once a year, we'll have the Avalanche play the Lightning. It's going to be freaking awesome. They're going to be flying up and down the ice and smashing each other and scoring goals and making great saves. But the rest of the year, let's just do a couple shootouts and call it good. This, this is the parallel in my mind. Uh, it's cause for, as the Masters ends, and that amount of thought and celebration and just feeling of goodwill that I have towards that as a product, as now we're exiting out of that and I'm, looking down at the PGA Tour, it's where I start to kind of get angry and go, well, as we think about the past, the present, and the future, I don't get it because the roadmap has been given. It's been given in the past. We still have it in the present. It will be there in the future. The answer is right here in front of your faces. What Augusta National demands, probably try and find things that lean into that. Augusta National is praised by players, by fans, by everyone, by everyone. You will not hear anybody not praise it. It's praised for what it demands. So as we wrap this up and think about past, present, and future, specifically for the sport of golf, I go, okay, the roadmap's there. So why is the PGA Tour unwilling to follow this recipe? Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. If you want to get my weekly newsletter, it is free. All you need to do is go to chrisrawl.com, click the subscribe button, give me your email address, and every Wednesday, it will appear magically in your inbox. Hopefully, you'll have a nice chuckle, and hopefully, it will enhance what you are already listening to on this show. So thank you again for listening, and I will talk to you later this week.